The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. If you join me in your Bibles, Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. This evening we will continue looking at chapter 1 and we will be in verses 15 through 22. In 1979, the People's Republic of China enacted what they called the one-child policy. It was a requirement that couples from the ethnic Han majority limit themselves to having only one child. Initially, China sought to encourage birth control with a slogan that was translated as late, long, and few. However, the campaign did not reduce the birth rate at a level that was acceptable to the Communist Party leaders. The one-child law was implemented in 1980, and the Communist Party of China had a goal to bring the nation's population below 1.2 billion people by the end of the 20th century because of growing fears that the nation was growing too quickly, thus limiting their ability to feed and control everybody. Now, as reports from the time noted, the nation's 38 million Communist Party members were told to use patient and painstaking persuasion to teach the rest of the population how important it was to rigorously enforce the policy. If families refused to comply, the government could fine couples for having additional children without a permit and then undergo forced sterilization. If a family committed to the policy, they were rewarded with longer maternity leaves and other kinds of benefits. It was considered a revolutionary good for society, and families were awarded with a certificate of honor for single-child parents. The policy was relaxed slightly in the mid-1980s when the government allowed second children for families in rural areas and who gave exception for households in which both parents grew up as only children themselves. Now, while the communist government believed that the policy was successful for the first few years, it led to mass abortions. And because most families preferred having sons instead of daughters, there was a massive gender imbalance and widespread female infanticide. Over the years, the policy restrictions were loosened. However, the population shrunk significantly to the point of not being able to replace the number of citizens that were dying in their aged population. Over time, since there were significantly fewer females to males, a massive slave trade trafficking operation began, primarily with North Korea and taking women who were forced to marry Chinese men who could not find wives. And to this day, the Chinese government denies that the trafficking ever took place. In 2021, the policy was changed to allow for three children per family, but the damage the policy caused will take decades to repair. Now, as horrific as this policy was for numerous reasons... Western researchers who study Chinese culture and demographics report that while the policy was to be enforced by government officials in local villages, 
Many of them were unwilling to follow through with penalties because these were the people in their own communities, their neighbors. And so as a result, many newborn girls were simply unreported and referred to as non-existent children. In other words, in the eyes of the government, these girls simply never existed while they were actually living healthy lives in their homes with their families. One estimate is that at least 30 million girls were born unreported. And because of courageous party officials who were unwilling to follow through with this policy, the families were left to live without penalty. Now, policies like this in China are not new to human societies. There have always been attempts to tamp down the growth of people groups for various reasons, and none of them have ever been good. As we come to our text in Exodus, we find the very same kind of thing happening in Egypt by decree of the Pharaoh. But we also find some courageous women, just like those Communist Party officials in China who were not willing to follow through with their policy. And so let's read together, beginning in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipporah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, a significant amount of ink has been spilt on this passage among both Jews and Christians, and many questions are raised about various issues, and we will spend some time looking at those. However, like most debates over texts in the Bible, I do not personally believe it is as difficult as many make it out to be. A lot of times, theologians and commentators need to meet page quotas for their publishers, and so they just write and write and write until they can write no more. Hopefully, we can get a straightforward approach and understand this text. Well, last time, we saw that ominous verse 8. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. The Pharaoh instilled fear into the hearts of the Egyptian people about the growing Israelite population. And he said in verse 9, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens." Well, we saw that the Israelites then were made to be slaves. 
And verse 14 says, It made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And so Pharaoh's true motives were revealed. Far more significant than any fear that the Israelites would actually rise up and rebel against Egypt, he was concerned mainly with building a civilization for himself. He was far more focused on ensuring that he would make a name for himself, and so he needed to keep the Israelites enslaved in order to make it happen. However, God made a covenant promise for the people of Israel to give them a name and to make them a people and to provide for them a land. And so Pharaoh was stepping into a fight with God and he just didn't even know it. Now, despite Pharaoh's efforts to put his boot on the neck of the Israelites, we see in verse 12 that God was still at work to fulfill his plan and promises. Moses writes that the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And having heard the lies of the Pharaoh and seeing that his plan was not working, the text tells us that the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So as we look now at verses 15 through 22, we see Pharaoh seeking to implement a new plan. Slavery and hard labor were not doing the trick, and so now he wants the midwives of the Hebrew women to commit infanticide. Look again at verses 15 and 16. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. Now, in the literature, there are a few questions about the midwives. The first question that is often asked is, is, are these women Israelites themselves? Now, a quick reading would suggest that they are, since they are called Hebrew midwives and midwives to the Hebrew women. However, it could mean that they are Egyptian midwives who are tending to the Hebrew women. They were Egyptians, and they came to deliver the Hebrew babies. Now, one must be honest here and admit that the text doesn't tell us whether or not they were Israelites exactly, Uh, and the reason it is of any significance at all is because of what the text tells us about what they did and how God responded to what they did. If they were Egyptians, they are, in fact, some of the first non-Israelites to be blessed by God in a special way. Nevertheless, I do think what is most likely is that they are Israelites based on their names, Shipporah and Puah. These are believed to be Hebrew names. And we'll see what they did, but I just want to say that it's wonderful. It's a wonderful thing that we know their names. I praise God that we know their names because these are the kind of people we want to know about. They are heroes They risk their lives to do the right thing, and by God's design, we know who they are, and so thousands of years later, we can remember them and honor them for the kind of women that they were. This is good for all of our women to see, and especially our young ladies. I want you to know, and I think about about my own daughters here, you may just think That as you go about your life and you do your regular tasks, just doing your job, just fulfilling your obligations, whatever that might be, but do not ever think 
that what you do is of no consequence. Your work, whether it's in a classroom, as a student, whether it's in your home, as a mother, or at a job, as an employee, whatever it is, when you do it unto the Lord and not unto man, it matters. You matter, and the Lord blesses your effort, even when you might think you're just grinding alone and doing things that nobody even notices. You matter, and your work matters. Now, a big question that arises in this text, and this is one that a lot of people who like to try and argue with Christians about the Bible turn to. The question is, did the midwives lie? Now, obviously, you can understand why people want to ask that question. It's a good question to ask. You can understand even even more why it would be that the enemies of God would want to try to discredit the Bible here. But we're going to work through this question and hopefully provide a helpful answer. The quandary begins in verse 17. Again, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Now at this point, as we read this, we all rejoice. Praise God that there are faithful people who will willingly defy even the decree of a king to protect the lives of children, one of our most precious and wonderful blessings in this world. And as I think about this, I think about the many medical professionals in our own nation who might one day be told by our government that if they want to keep their job, they will have to offer and perform abortive procedures. It's an unspeakably wicked thing that abortion even exists and that people will fight with evil, vitriolic, demonic venom to ensure that they can continue to do it without getting in trouble. It's legalized murder, and there's simply no other way to talk about it. But to add on top of that, the devastatingly evil idea that if a person wants to serve others in a medical career where they are called to to take care of them and to preserve life, that they will have to actually be the one pulling the trigger, so to speak, is vile. In most Western nations, there are currently conscientious objector laws on the books that protect medical professionals from having to involve themselves in abortion. However, there are some countries where it is virtually impossible to turn away a patient who wants an abortion. In fact, right here in the United States, there have been many attempts at the federal level at making this nightmare a reality. But thanks be to God that he has had the right people in place at the right time to keep this from happening. Nevertheless, Be assured they will keep trying, and sadly, in time, I think they will eventually win. But as Christians, we must fight this battle. It is a worthy battle, and quite honestly, deserves far more attention than we tend to give it. It's something that often seems out of sight and out of mind. Think about it. If you were an Israelite, and you knew this was happening in your neighbor's house, You would want it stopped immediately, and you might even do something to stop it yourself. And yet, every day in our country, babies are killed inside their mother's womb because it's hidden in a clean, comfortable clinic and performed by someone in a white coat with a few letters after their name. And it has become mainstream, and unless it's a new election cycle, most people just doing 
anything at all is off the radar. We just think about it and talk about it every now and then. Brothers and sisters, we need to be praying regularly that God would make it stop. And when he gives us the opportunity, we need to involve ourselves in ending this atrocity. So we commend these brave women for refusing to follow Pharaoh's command, even though it could have cost them their lives. But then we see in verse 18, So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. And this is where the question arises. Did they lie? It's a good question. Now, there are several possibilities in this text, and this is one of those times where we have to remind ourselves how important it is to be careful in our reading as to not immediately draw a conclusion based on what we think we see on the surface. The immediate and most common assumption that most people make in this text is that the midwives lied to Pharaoh when they said the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They give birth before the midwives can come to them. But if you stop and think about it, there are actually several possibilities here. I'll mention at least three of them. The first possibility is that the midwives are, in fact, telling the truth. At this point, the text is indicating that the Israelites are a very large people group. And it's not as though they are having babies in hospitals with a team of nurses and doctors monitoring them every moment throughout the laboring process. So it could very well be true that the Hebrew women were having so many babies. And the text seems to be making clear that they're having far more than the Egyptians, that by the time the midwives got to them, because perhaps they were busy with other new moms delivering their babies, that they had already given birth. If we take the text as it's written, and we take their response at face value, this could be the case. A second possibility is that the Hebrew women heard about Pharaoh's decree, that the midwives were to kill the sons of the Hebrew women, and so they simply did not call for the midwives until after they had given birth. You can envision a scenario in which the women were aware of what Pharaoh wanted to happen, and so word got out among the families Only call the midwives after the birth is complete, and then they will come and they will care for you and your baby. After all, the midwives would only know to be in the home when the baby was being born if they were called on to be there. And so this is a plausible scenario. A third possibility is that the midwives did indeed tell Pharaoh a lie. But I want to be very clear that while this is the overwhelming assumption of the passage... Nowhere does it tell us that this is the case. It is assumed that they lied because of the surrounding context. Again, the previous verse says, The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So this being the case, the first scenario I presented of the midwives simply telling the truth and just not getting there on time is probably the least likely. But the way they could have let the male children live is to actually tell the Hebrew women, the families themselves, this is what Pharaoh wants from us. So please do not call for us until after the baby is born. 
So our second option may be still a contender here. But perhaps it was an outright lie. How should we think about that? If this is the case, I think it's important to consider what we understand about the Sixth Commandment. The Sixth Commandment is, do not murder. And as we think about the moral law, we need to remember that there is always an inverse to what is stated explicitly. So in this instance, the moral law that says, do not murder has an inverse implication that we have an obligation to protect life. So here we have two midwives who, the text tells us twice, feared God. So they would understand their moral obligation before God to not murder the babies, but to protect their lives. Aha, the critic might say. So when the ninth commandment says, do not bear false witness... The inverse implication is always tell the truth. Therefore, the midwives sinned when they told a lie. Well, there are certainly theologians throughout history that have drawn that conclusion, many of whom I have deep respect for, even John Calvin himself. However, I'm not willing to say that the midwives sinned because there are numerous factors at play that need to inform our thinking. And I want to go through this. I think it's helpful for all of us to think very clearly about Christian ethics and how to apply them to our daily lives. So this is a good lesson in ethics for us as we think about God's law and how we understand and utilize it. So first, is there ever a sense in which we should think about the commands of God in a prioritized order? Here's an example that relates directly to the scenario with the midwives. God tells us that we are to submit ourselves to governing authorities. And yet, we all realize that while Pharaoh is the governing authority, it would be wrong of the midwives to kill the male children of the Hebrew women. And so we say, yes, Well, we should never obey the governing authorities when they are commanding us to do something that is sinful and opposed to the law of God. Yes, that is correct. That is good. There's good and right place for civil disobedience. We see it worked out with the disciples when they refused to stop preaching the gospel even after they were rebuked by the Sanhedrin. We rightly celebrate the civil disobedience of people like Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr. and missionaries who go into closed countries under a false pretense or when they sneak Christian literature into closed countries that have made evangelizing and preaching and the distribution of Christian literature illegal. God has commanded us to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so closed or not, In a country, we will preach the gospel, we will get it to the people, whatever it takes. Are we really prepared to tell a missionary who goes into a Muslim nation or somewhere in the Far East with a visa that indicates that they are there to work as a carpenter or a teacher or a business consultant, that they are in sin because they have lied? If that were the case, I think it would be safe to say that there are parts of the world that will never receive the gospel. Instead, there are closed countries right now where there are healthy, vibrant Christian communities that meet in secret to learn the scriptures, to hear the preaching of the word, and to fellowship with other believers, and we can praise God for that. 
And most Christians don't think twice about it. So you might conclude, well, yes, there is an established case in the Bible for civil disobedience. There are times when we have to do what God commands despite what the governing authorities command. We must obey God and not man when the two are at odds with one another. But lying is a different issue. That is not civil disobedience. Fair enough. I had this discussion with a brother many years ago, and he told me that he thought the midwives were right in refusing to do what Pharaoh commanded, but they sin if they lied, and that when we try to justify it, we are putting too high a premium on the value of our own lives. In other words, he said that they should have done what they did, but when asked, they should have simply taken whatever punishment came their way as a result instead of lying. They were noble and loving and right in thinking of others more highly than themselves, but they should have never thought so highly of themselves to lie in order to protect themselves. This is essentially the argument that John Calvin makes and others who have commented on this passage. But John Calvin was also a paedo-baptist, so he wasn't always right. (laughs) And here's an area where I think he's completely wrong, even though I understand his argument. Now, one reason I think this argument is wrong is because, as I've just argued, there is, at times, places where we need to see a priority to what God has commanded. In this instance, not murdering and preserving life is of a higher priority than not lying. Unfortunately, brothers and sisters, there will be times in our lives when we have to make a decision that no matter what we do, we are going to have this kind of conflict. So we have to figure out God's priority. So when it comes to something like preserving life, for example, is there something of a greater priority than that? Is there a time to simply accept death because what we are standing for or against is of greater value than preserving life? Absolutely. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar told them he was their governing authority. They had to worship him or he would have them thrown into the fiery furnace. And what did they say to him? They said, I'm paraphrasing, look, dude, you can do whatever you want. We're not going to worship you. You can throw us in the fiery furnace and God will protect us. But even if he doesn't, we will not worship you. We have one God and we only worship him. So kill us and get it over with. And so in that understanding, we realize they're not seeking to preserve their life. They're seeking to obey the first commandment. It took precedence in this instance. So you see, oftentimes we we want to look at passages like this and just make a simple argument in hindsight, like it's really simple, but we have to think more carefully. And you know what? Here's how I know the midwives did the right thing. It's right there in the text. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Now, there are commentators who will say that God did this despite their sin in lying, but I think that's reading something into the text that is simply not there. It's saying very straightforwardly, the Lord was pleased with the women, 
And so he blessed them, and he gave them families, and the Israelites continued to grow strong. If there was really an issue here that we were to take note of, I think the text would have said so. Moses could have written, The Lord blessed the Hebrew midwives even though they had lied. But that's not what it says. There are no exception clauses or addendums to this text. It simply says that God dealt well with them and blessed them with families. Now, I don't want to keep hammering this point too long, but one more thing for us to consider. There is one other place where there's a similar situation in the Bible, and that is with Rahab hiding the Israelite spies. She knew. She knew that if she told the authorities that she was hiding them, that they would be killed, she would likely be taken away and murdered herself. So she hid them, she helped them escape, and what does the writer of Hebrews say about Rahab in Hebrews 11.31? He writes this, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Think about that language. It's very telling. She did not perish with those who were disobedient. What's the implication? Well, of course, that she was obedient. And what was the mark of her obedience? She had given friendly welcome to the spies. Doesn't that tell us something about what the Lord thinks of her actions, just like the midwives? I love what the Lord says to the Israelites in Isaiah chapter 30. He's telling them not to go down to Egypt. And he says in verse 7 of Isaiah 30, Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab who sits still. That's a wonderful phrase. In other words, they have the, me- they, they, they have the means to be helpful. They have the means to assist. And yet they won't. Because they are not like Rahab. They will sit still. And they will not protect you. They will harm you. And so you see, brothers and sisters, whether, whether the midwives were telling the truth, whether the Hebrew women were just not calling on the midwives until the babies were born, or whether they did tell a lie to preserve life, the Bible never accuses them of sin. Nor do similar acts get treated as sin. But are blessed of the Lord. They are commended as acts of faith in service to the Lord. In more modern history, we can say that those who hid people who were brought to America to be sold as slaves and sent away to safe places like Harriet Tubman, or those Germans and Christians who hid Jews so that they were not taken away by the Nazis, were perfectly right in doing so. And for them to say, what slaves? What Jews, when they came knocking at their door, they were perfectly legitimate and praiseworthy actions, not sinful. Far be it from us to call them sinful in those actions. Instead, let us celebrate people with such boldness and compassion for their neighbor. And if we were ever in such a situation, may the Lord help us to be wise and to be courageous and bold to stand against evildoers and tyrants. Now, I want to spend time again on what Pharaoh was after. Remember the text, verse 16 again. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall Live And then in verse 22, 
every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And as the people of Israel continue to grow in number, the Pharaoh instilled fear into the hearts of the Egyptian people that the Israelites were going to rise up and overthrow them. And we saw last week in verse 10, he said, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now, there are several reasons why Pharaoh probably did this. Remember, despite the previous arrangement, this new Pharaoh saw no reason whatsoever to honor any alliance with the Israelites in the land of Egypt. They were foreigners living in his land, and if they ever decided to leave, it would deal a serious blow to the economy of his nation and his own personal wealth. Remember, it was Joseph himself who, was, who had ensured that the Pharaoh would continue to be a wealthy man off of the labor of the people, and yet the new king did not know or remember or care about Joseph or his people or what had been done in order to secure his own economic stability. Was Pharaoh really concerned that the Israelites might rebel against the Egyptians? that they might rise up and start a revolution, or that they might join forces with another nation's military and fight against them. Perhaps he was. It's kind of a silly conclusion to draw, given that this generation of Israelites had only ever lived in Egypt. That was the only life they knew. That was their home. But perhaps. That's what he said to ensure that the Egyptians would be fearful of them. And in his paranoia that he might possibly lose power, it could very well be the case that he was truly fearful of the outcome. But whatever the case is, that was the pretext under which he declared that it was essential for all the Hebrew boys to be murdered. He tried first with the midwives, telling them to kill the boys as they were being born. And when that didn't work, we see in verse 22, he says, fine, if it's a boy... Just take him away and toss him into the Nile. But if it's a girl, she can live. Now this ensures three things for Pharaoh. First, it ensures that the Israelites would not have the necessary men to stand an army or to join with another opposing force to come against the Egyptians. No men, no fighters. And so the simple solution was to never let the boys become men and kill them as soon as they were born. The second thing it would do, and this was really not a very economically sound decision for Pharaoh, but nobody ever said he was wise, it would ensure that the Israelites would no longer be able to reproduce. Despite what the mentally ill progressives of today want to tell us, women cannot be men and cannot produce children if there are no men, so that pretty much dries up the population, doesn't it? Just like the problem that has been presented in China with too many men and not enough women. But there's a third thing that happens, and it's maybe not as obvious on the surface. And that is the detrimental effect of feminizing a culture. Now, some may want to mention me on social media here and make a big deal about it, so I want to clarify. I'm not saying that femininity is bad or wrong. 
I have a beautiful, amazing wife and two incredible, beautiful, amazing daughters that I love more than I could ever put into words. Some of the greatest, most important people in my life are women, and you sisters sitting here are among them. I'm talking about you. I want my wife and daughters and sisters in Christ to be feminine and to display feminine qualities in their manner of life and appearance. It's good and right, and it's important. It's just how God made you. And I thank him for that. Never be ashamed of being a woman. You are a blessing and you are an indispensable part of how God has created this world. I have seen three babies being born with my own eyes and I will tell you right now, I don't want anything to do with that. (laughs) You are superheroes as far as I'm concerned. However, it's not crazy that we want femininity to be preserved in our culture. You're not the crazy one for thinking that women should be women and men should be men. And yet, in our current cultural climate, the mantra is basically that if men aren't wearing dresses and drinking pumpkin spice lattes and cuddling kittens and wearing rainbow sweaters, that we're toxic masculinity men. Did you know that many now consider it sexist for a man to open a door for a woman? They want you to pay for their dinner, but if you pull a chair out for them, you're a chauvinist pig all of a sudden. Men standing up for and protecting women is now toxic male aggression. But if we stand back and let her get beat up, we're cowards. It's moral insanity. It is utter madness, and yet, this is the water that our boys are swimming in. It is the air that they breathe. Why? Because one of the most effective ways to destroy a culture is to feminize it. A few years ago, when the United States military decided to start sending women to be trained in the best special operations units the world has ever known, to be sent onto the front lines of battle, I said this is the beginning of the end, and we certainly haven't slowed down. Now, our military is now paying for gender reassignment surgery for men who want to pretend like they're women, while in the meantime, on average, seven veterans a day are killing themselves, and the VA is doing nothing about it. Brothers and sisters, no society can survive without women, and I don't want to live in a world without women. That would be absolutely awful and intolerable. But you know what else? No society can survive without men. And if it did, it would be leveled in a day. Bottom line, women should never be ashamed to be women, and men should never be ashamed to be men. Be who God created you to be, and don't let the world tell you that it's bad or wrong or outdated. Beautiful femininity and strong masculinity are never bad or wrong or outdated because they are according to God's design. But what Pharaoh understood and what all of the enemies of God understand and are seeking to implement today is that a feminized culture is a culture that has no future. 
Brethren, the West is in crisis, and the only remedy is godly men being men and godly women being women, standing against the constant onslaught of psychotic cultural warriors who are trying their hardest to strip us of our identities, casting our boys into the Nile. Notice who Pharaoh commanded to do this in verse 22. It says, all the people of Egypt. He commanded all of his people. It doesn't work if only a few are doing it. This needs to be complete cultural change. Everyone needs to get involved. Everyone needs to buy into the agenda. And if you don't, you can go with them. Do you want to be an evil tyrant and enjoy destroying an entire civilization? Easy. You don't have to raise up a military. You don't have to start a revolution. You just need to convince boys and men to act like gross substitutes for women. And once that happens, everyone can pack their bags because it's over. Mamas, don't coddle your boys and don't let them be soft. They need calluses and scars and bruises. Otherwise, they won't survive in this brutal world. Dads, you better be good examples of what a man is supposed to be. Kind and loving, gracious and merciful, but fierce warriors at heart that will fight a pack of wolves or a raging bear to save your family, even if you die trying. May our prayer be that the Lord would preserve the femininity of our girls and save our boys. It's serious. May it never be said that we just stood by and watched as our neighbors and our government threw our boys into the Nile. But in the midst of all of this, don't miss what's going on. It's something, something we saw last week as well. God continues in the midst of it all to fulfill his promise. It's easy to miss if you're not reading carefully. Second part, verse 20. The people multiplied and grew very strong. Now, perhaps the people looked around and they thought things were looking pretty bleak. I'm sure as they were suffering under the boot of this tyrant king that there was no hope. And yet God was working. God was blessing. God was growing their people. He promised he would, and God always fulfills his promises. If he says he will do it, it is as good as done. So brothers and sisters, I know among many Christians and many sitting here right now, it's very tempting for us to look around at our world, at everything that we see around us, everything that's happening in the way it's happening, and think this is really bad and it's getting worse. And there's a tendency to get fearful and to get anxious. But brothers and sisters, consider the Israelites. Hard, back-breaking slave labor day after day after day. The constant threat of their sons being murdered. The fear that their families would be wiped away forever. And yet, the Lord continued to orchestrate everything to fulfill his purposes. And what is his purpose? That from this small nation of Israel would come a king far greater than any pharaoh far greater than any king. Not a tyrant king who rules by a fist or a sword, but a loving, gracious, merciful, sacrificial king that nobody expected. 
it was through these people that Pharaoh had enslaved that would come the once and for all time king of the universe who would reign and rule forever and ever. For now they have stripes on their backs, massive weight on their shoulders, blisters and calluses and bruises and sunburns and rashes and diseases. But many years later, from their midst would come the one who would make all things right. Jesus entered into the world at the right time through the family line which we are reading about right here. This is why God was with him. This is why God was blessing them. This is why God saved them, so that Jesus would come through them to save sinners like you and me. And friend, if you do not know this God, if you do not know this Lord Jesus Christ, the once and forever King of the universe, you are going to continue to look around at the world around us. Perhaps you accept some of it for what it is. But you know in your heart of hearts that it's a lie. It's a destructive, hellish lie. And it goes nowhere. You know that. And yet, if you look to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, you see what a real, true man is and what God's people strive to be. Yes, gracious and loving and kind and merciful, and patient. But he will not be that way forever. As we read, when he returns, he comes and his robe is stained with the blood of his enemies. May it be that you not be his enemy, trampled underfoot, because you decided to go your own way in your own wisdom. May it be that you look to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, coming to the end of yourself, living not upon your own righteousness, living not upon your own finite wisdom, but living upon the one who lived and died that you might live forever. Look to Christ that you might live forever. And brothers and sisters, may the Lord help us to trust this king, to kiss him, to love him, to hope in him. May the Lord be glorified in our midst as we continue to trust the one who gave us everlasting life, even when there were times in the story when that didn't even seem possible. This is God we're talking about after all. All things are possible. Let's pray to God. Lord, we are thankful that in the midst of of the darkest of days throughout the history of the world that we can see that you continue to be faithful, that you continue to do your work to bring about your purposes. And most of all, we thank you that your greatest purpose in all of history unfolding was to bring the Lord Jesus Christ into this world to live a perfect life and to die a sinner's death and to be raised from the dead for people like us. Lord, we readily admit that we deserve, like the Israelites, to receive the stripes on our backs and the weight on our shoulders and the sun beating down on our heads. And yet you have given us refuge under the shadow of Christ. 
And so we thank you, Lord, and we pray that we remember the promises of your word. And in remembering these promises, that we not be fearful, that we not be cowardly, but that we stand in the face of all opposition and remember the truth of what you have told us in your word and know that by our faith, as we fear God like those godly, wonderful midwives of the Hebrews, that we too could stand and say, we will not defy our God, no matter what may come. And so, Lord, help us to be wise Help us to be a people who honors you in all that we do. Help us to live lives that give glory to you no matter what may come. Help us, O oh God, to trust you. And we ask you to do all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church, and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.